How are we all doing today? All right, good, good. Well, welcome to the first Sunday of the new year. That's exciting, and uh, I'm excited to be able to stand before you today and, and uh, deliver a uh, message, deliver the Word of God. I hope that uh, you've all had a wonderful time to rest and spend time with your loved ones during Christmas and New Year's. I know it's been a couple of weeks since we have been together, um, so I'm really, really glad to see all of you here today. My name is Scott. I am one of the elders here at Discovery, and um, today we're going to be diving into a section of the book of Matthew. If you haven't been with us, we have been walking through the book of Matthew for a little while now, and we'll be continuing in this book for quite some time. So today we're going to be going through a section that is sometimes referred to as the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount. And if you have a Bible or an app, go ahead and, and pull that out so that you can follow along today. If you do not have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. Uh, we have some people here who would love to give you one of the Bibles that we have here so that you can follow along with us today, and more importantly, so that you can take it home with you and continue to follow along with us throughout the rest of the week. So, this section that we're going to be in today, before we get there, I want us to just back up and just pause for just a moment where we can review a little bit of, of what we have covered so far, a couple of concepts that I think are going to be really important for us to bear in mind and to really think about. Uh, the first is, in the first week of this series, Pastor Steve talked with us a little bit about uh, what it means that this is the gospel, right? And what gospel means is good news. And if you think about it, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all referred to as the gospels. And so I find that it's a little easy for us to say, okay, well, that's the gospel of Matthew or the gospel of Mark or the gospel of whatever. And we may not necessarily stop and think about that as we read along in each section, and so what I hope that you can do with me here today is as we read along, ask yourself, hey, these things that we're reading about, in what way is this good news? Not just to know that, hey, there's this term associated that maybe isn't used outside of church language, but that it is, in some ways, really good news. And to think about that as, how is this good news? How is it good news for the people at that time? How is it good news for me? And then how do I get to make that be good news for other people? The second thought that I want to share is that each of the Gospels, they all have certain distinctive features and things that they will talk about um, more than others or, or things that they might emphasize. And in Matthew's case, one of these points is on this idea of the kingdom of heaven. And this is going to come up in today's passage. It comes up throughout uh, the book of Matthew, frankly. And what this emphasizes is this idea that for some of us, following Jesus can be really challenging, it can be tough, there's suffering, there's, you know, sometimes difficulty as we walk through our life with God, and then we tell ourselves, hey, the good news is, though, someday I'll get to go and be with the Lord in heaven and everything will be all right. And that is certainly true. But God's plan isn't just for you to kind of be in a holding pattern here today until you die. His plan is to actually bring his kingdom here through you right here to earth. And so we will hear a little more about that as well. And then immediately leading up to where we are going to cover today, we're starting at the end of chapter four and going through about the first half of chapter five, but to review from a couple weeks back, 
If you've been following along in Matthew, in chapter 4, we see that right after Jesus has been baptized, he goes to the wilderness, is tempted by the devil, um, he successfully overcomes those temptations, let's say. Uh, John the Baptist is arrested, and then Jesus begins preaching, and he begins calling his disciples. And so that is the backdrop of where we are for today. So as we enter into this passage, just be thinking about that. That's what's happening in the life of Jesus at that point in time. Now, I know I didn't provide any sermon notes, so for those of you who are introverts and, and really like to know, where, where is Scott going with all of this? I have a couple of thoughts I want to share. So the big idea of what I would like for you to take from this today, if nothing else, is the concept that life in the kingdom of, of God does not exempt you from suffering. Instead, it offers hope and a role to play in God's plan for redemption. For each of us, there's going to be suffering, or we have weaknesses or limitations, or different things that may seem a little bit less desirable for us, and sometimes those will cause us to say, maybe I'm just not qualified to follow God fully. And I will you know, just tip my hand and just tell you, I really feel that actually quite the opposite is true that it's because of these sufferings, it's because of these limitations, it's because of these weaknesses that they cause us to not have confidence in ourselves, but instead we get to have uh, confidence in Jesus and we get to rely on Jesus and lean into Jesus. And by doing all of that, not only does it give us confidence right, in Jesus knowing that he's the one we can trust, but it brings him glory and it brings him praise at the same time. Now, one more thing I, I want to share is that the structure for today. When I first was looking at this passage, I thought, gosh, it would be nice if I just had one little thing, just the Beatitudes, and then I could just talk about that. But there's also a couple of pieces that go right before and right after that, and I had to really sit with this and think about it and, and listen to God to see, well, how does all this fit together? And I have landed on this idea that there are three stages to what we're covering today. In stage one, we have Jesus' strategy. And what we're going to see is, is that Jesus has a strategy for drawing people to him so that they can enter into stage two, which is hearing the message itself. If Jesus just went out and said, hey, I'm going to just start with a message, but there was no one there, it doesn't do any good, right? And in his message, he's going to identify to these individuals who are listening, hey, guess what? You are people who are called to be members of the kingdom of God. He then doesn't just leave it there to say, hey, good news, I want you in my kingdom, but he also then follows this with a charge or a mission of saying, now it's your responsibility to go to others and share this same message and share the love of God as well. So we will see each of these things today, and I want us to think about all of those. How are they good news? How do they impact what we are doing in our own lives as well? So let's get into this right here. In stage one, so we have uh, the very last three verses of Matthew. They say, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases. Those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. 
Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So let's stop right there. And let's, um, let's take a moment and really just think about this strategy that Jesus has. Now, if you're like me, sometimes you're looking for even just what's a good strategy for reading the Bible. Like, what do I take out of this here other than that Jesus went and did a few things, right? Um, I like to think that we can just very simply read this and stop and just make a few observations. So some of the observations that I want to point out are first that Jesus goes directly to the people themselves. Here we have Jesus who is the Son of God who theoretically could have said, I'm Jesus. When it boils down to it, eventually people will figure it out, that I'm good, that I want to bring them the kingdom, but I'll just wait around, and once they figure it out, they'll just naturally start coming to me. But that's not what he does, right? Instead, it says pretty directly that Jesus went throughout Galilee. And that as he did it, he was teaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. So he was going to where people were already at. And if we bear in mind that right before this is when he just calls his first disciples, we see he didn't put them on some big, large uh, scale, hey, let me train you for months or years at a time, and then you're qualified, and then we'll go out and start doing things. He just takes them as they are, and they start uh, out just like that. Second observation is that Jesus proclaims the kingdom in tandem with the healing that happens here. Um, I think this is actually really, really important to realize it's not one or the other. Because what we see is, is that if Jesus was just simply preaching, hey, I've got some good news for you, the kingdom of heaven is near, and then he just moved on, people might not have received this as good news. They might have gone, well, that's something that's theoretically interesting. Maybe it's something that I can subscribe to intellectually, but it may have no impact in my life whatsoever. Conversely, if he came around and just healed, but didn't ever share any of the good news about the kingdom of God, how would people know about God? They may have a, a physical need that is taken care of, something that is very temporary, but at the end of the day, they're not going to be glorifying God because of it. They're just going to say, hey, I'm really glad to have been healed. Now, to speak further on the healing, this third point is that it's very tangible. And I think that this, too, is really great because sometimes in church kind of things, what we may be looking to do or to share with other people may seem more theoretical than anything. It may not have a lot of tangible, so what difference does that make in my life? And I see in this passage here, Jesus is actually really looking to make a tangible difference in the lives of people. Step back for a second and think about this, the kinds of things that it says he's healing, that they are people who have uh, severe pain, demon-possessed, seizures, paralyzed, etc., etc., and it says that he healed all of them. There's no modern medicine. There's no, you know, hospital that suddenly, you know, the, the great giant Galilean hospital that everyone's just going to and they have problems. So if you're paralyzed, where's your hope? It's probably gone. It probably doesn't exist. You are now stuck in a place of life that you have no way to get out of. So Jesus quite literally is offering something to them that I believe on a tangible level is really good news. 
Not just telling them, hey, this is who you know, uh, God is, right? This is what it means to follow him. But it's also this, let me help you through some of your suffering. Let me give you good news. Let me give you a new chance of life. You were paralyzed, now you are not anymore. You had a demon, now you do not anymore. So I think that's pretty wonderful and amazing. Finally, we see that people start coming to Jesus from all around. As it says here, news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who had these diseases, right? It says large crowds from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. I don't know how well you can see this map, but that, that's a map of Israel and then Syria's up there in the top right-hand corner. And so it pretty well is saying that while he's up in Galilee, that little blue spot that's kind of in the northern part, you know, up by uh, the purple and orange area sandwiched in there, he has people who are coming to him now from all over the place. And I have found that a lot of people are willing to commit time and energy to do things that they find value in. And so suddenly we have people who are saying, hey, there's something really good here. There's something really valuable. I want to be a part of this. In addition to that, what we see is this. People who themselves are hearing the good news and are having uh, healing and things taking place, you know what happens when people have good news? They very naturally want to go and share it with other people. And so they go back to wherever they're from or wherever they happen to be going and they share this good news and that starts drawing more people to Jesus. So the strategy here comes down to that Jesus goes out to people and he shares with them about the good news of the kingdom, but he also tangibly displays it in ways that involve healing in people's lives, something that they can recognize and say, you know what, that is good news. I do want that. So let's go on to stage two, where we get into the actual message itself. And this is the part that we would typically refer to as the Beatitudes. Now, as we have all these people who are now starting to gather around Jesus, it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. <laughs> Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right. Does that list sound like it's a bunch of good news? Yeah? Right? And like, there's some parts in there that actually do, right? Like, so if we can pull up the next slide here, what I've got here is a little chart. And on the left, you see what Jesus has identified as blessed as. And then on the right, we see why they are blessed, right? Or what he, you know, the corollary that goes along with it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Some of those don't sound bad. I mean, if, if someone wanted to describe me as being merciful or pure in heart or a peacemaker, all right, I'll take that, right? Like, that sounds good. But at the same time, if I'm told, hey, you're persecuted, you're mourning, maybe you're poor in spirit, which 
you know, maybe that somehow means maybe I'm just not quite spiritual enough. Maybe I'm not measuring up enough in some ways. Um, that may not necessarily be something that I would say, amen, good news. I love it. Um, and I think a lot of us do that to ourselves, where we think that maybe we are not spiritual enough and we, we downplay our own walk with the Lord. But I want to talk about this because one of the things that really happens in this here is this word blessed. And as we read this, oftentimes I believe we read this to mean, hey, blessed are you when you mourn or you will be blessed, right? We read it as though the words have changed. You will be blessed if you're mourning because you will be comforted. And that certainly is true too, right? God is going to comfort you. But I also want to be really clear that as I was really studying and just kind of leaning into this, the sense behind this word blessed that is being used here isn't about some future blessing. It's not saying, hey, someday, hopefully, it'll be all right for you. But it's actually in the present tense. It's saying, you already are blessed. So when you look at these kind of items that are here, you may not look at your own mourning and say, I am blessed. But God will see it that way. He will say, you are blessed already. I've already blessed you. It's not just about, hey, you will eventually end up in a place of blessing. You already are. I'm right here with you, right? These are the things that I have chosen that I find to be, you know, worthwhile or important, if you will. Now, some of these don't seem like things that we highly value, right? Some of them don't seem like things that we want. Again, they may affect our own identities. We might have some shame about them. Am I really poor in spirit? Why do I mourn? Doesn't it say that the fruit of the spirit is joy, right? It's not one of them that's listed there, and wouldn't that be good, right? And so then if you, you know, struggle a little bit more with that kind of a thing, I think it's a comfort to know right away here that the Lord is, is actually delivering these words here, and he's delivering them not just to the crowds there that day, but he's delivering them also to you. You are blessed. Maybe you're not, you know, happy all the time or without problems. Maybe part of why you mourn is because of the love you have for other people. I used to work with a woman who seemed like all the time, she was having to, you know, take work off or she had different things happening. And we'd talk to her and she'd say, yeah, this person that I know recently just died and so I need to go to the funeral, right? She's probably only a few years older than me. She's got a lot of, you know, mourning that happens there, but there's some blessing in that because if we stop and really unpack that and think about what does this mean? It means she's touched a lot of lives and had a lot of other people touch her life as well. And that is quite beautiful, if you will. Now, I think that the fact that God doesn't just say, look, oh, you're blessed if you're poor in spirit and mourning and meek and, and you know, the rest of the list, hope you figure that out, but that there is a corollary, hey, because yours is the kingdom of heaven, you will be comforted, you will inherit the earth, being filled, you will see God. I want to see God. I'm not as pure in heart as I would like to be, but I know I want to see God, right? You'll be called children of God. The fact that he has all of these things tell me that God places a really high value on each of the things that are already shown right here. A couple other spots in, in Scripture 
I think are relevant and important here. And so the Apostle Paul, who is speaking to a church in Corinth, writes in 1 Corinthians. He says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. I like this. I like this a lot because I'm not noble, right? I'm not wise. I'm not influential. I'm not attractive or powerful or, you know, or whatever it is that our culture says that you are supposed to be, okay? I like this because God chooses things that we ourselves probably would not naturally expect and we would not naturally gravitate towards. And he says, I have a use for that. And Paul is talking here to an established church of people and reinforcing and building them up to remind them, God chose you and he didn't choose you on your merits. He didn't choose you because of how much you had to offer. He chose you and he works with you to build his kingdom because of who you already are, limitations, sufferings, weaknesses, and all. And when we do that, these things that we might place low value on, it actually draws us close to Jesus because we recognize the dissonance between what God has called us to do and who we may naturally be with our own skills and abilities, right? So where we then have to you know, rely and say, God, if this is going to be done, it's going to be a work of your Holy Spirit. It is not going to be because Scott is naturally talented, naturally gregarious, and naturally able to just go and do whatever and connect with people, right? Because those don't describe me. And so I think that God's way of viewing things is oftentimes very inverted from our own, and it's why we can look at suffering and weakness and say, huh, there's still going to be hope in this because God has a use for that, right? Culturally prevailing opinions in Jesus' day, and frankly in our own, are that there are things that you're going to look at, you're going to see. Hey, that person looks like they have their life together. That person's healthy. They're wealthy. They're wise, right? Whatever it is, hey, they must be really blessed. And there are people who, that's part of what they preach. Hey, this is a mark of God's blessing upon you. And I'm not here to say that if you're healthy or wealthy or wise, that that means that you're doing something wrong. If you have those things, those are a blessing too. Those are a gift, and I hope that you praise God for them. Amen. I think they're wonderful. But if that's how we view blessing, that you have to have these kinds of things, then for those of us who are not sitting in those places, then the corollary would be true too, right? Like the, the inverse of that, that, hey, there must be something wrong with you. And we see that that's not really true. So a couple of places, later in Matthew's gospel, much, much later, in chapter 19, um, he's going to talk to a guy who is fairly wealthy, and this guy is going to ask him, hey, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus tells him about following the commandments. He says, I've already done this. And then Jesus says, hey, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor. And the guy walks away sad, and Jesus makes a comment about this, about how hard it will be for when you have wealth, when you have resources, in order to follow God. And part of that is because you're trusting in, in that. What I think is really interesting, though, is that the disciples, who by that point have been with him for some point in time, some period of time, 
are able to then come out and say, well, then who then can be saved? It's, it's a question that they ask. It, it speaks to the culturally prevailing opinion. This guy looked like he had it all together. So if he's not being saved, who is? What's going on here? And Jesus tells them, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Right? There's an inversion. It's not always what you would expect or what you might think. In the book of John, we run into another story, and, and there are plenty of stories in the Gospels, but these are just a few examples where there is a man who is blind. <laughs> and the disciples' question, I thought, was really telling. It's really interesting. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It's not a question of, Jesus, what happened here? Is there sin involved? What's the problem? It's already assumed to be involved, that his problems are somehow a result of sin right away. And Later, we see from the Pharisees in that same story that they have the exact same opinion because they tell the guy pretty directly to his face, you've always been a sinner, that's why you had the problem. Jesus' answer, however, says neither of them. This is not a result of sin. He says, this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So wherever your weakness or wherever your suffering is, they may not feel like good news. But I hope that as we sit with this today and we think about it, we can ask ourselves, how does this transform into good news? How is this used by God to be good news to me and to those around me that he has called me to? Because this man probably wasn't sitting there blind going, this is good news. Okay? But then as he is healed and he gets to display the work of God, we then get to see later on the good news. Now, fun cultural take. How many of you like Garfield? Anybody like the comic strip Garfield? You know this one? Yes? So I love Garfield. I think it's fun. My kids love Garfield as well. And so we have a comic strip here, Garfield the cat, who is pretty bossy and likes to run the show in his own house. And then we have his owner, John. And John says, I'm getting tired of your strong arm tactics around here, Garfield. Remember, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And Garfield's response is, but in the meantime, the strong will make a pretty comfortable living, right? Which, you know, it's a humorous take, but it's, it's very culturally relevant, culturally appropriate way to look at this and say, gosh, some of these things that God is saying are blessed, right? Part of what we don't like about them is that if you are meek, it means that maybe you're leaving more in control of God instead of in your own control, Right? Maybe what you're looking at is not to say, hey, how does this benefit later on? It's, hey, but right now, if I'm strong, if I'm forceful in some way, I can get what I want, and uh, I can just, you know, kind of have things working out for me in the way that I desire. And so I have another um, chart for us to look at. And again, we, we start with the same on the left, all the things that are blessed, but on the right, we get kind of an opposite of each of those. And I put this up because I think it's important to really think about it. When it says blessed are the poor in spirit, there's also things that it doesn't say are blessed, right? He could have said, hey, blessed are the poor in spirit, as are those who are really, really spiritual. But he doesn't say that. He could have said, hey, blessed are those who mourn, but so are those who are happy and those who don't have troubles. But he doesn't say that, right? Blessed are the meek and the forceful who go around pushing their way through things to get what they want. Those who seem like they've got it together, 
who can advance things really well. He doesn't say, hey, I like those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, but I also like those who, they're okay with the idea of righteousness. They like it, but they're not going to pursue it all out. Etc., etc., unforgiving, impure. Those who, you know, desire war. Those who look for everything to be safe and comfortable. He doesn't go to those. But I think many of those are cultural values that we have today, both inside and outside of the church. Okay? And so I, I think it's really helpful for us to really think about that and to say, Jesus has very clearly identified things in the first column that are blessed. He has very clearly omitted things in the other column. So those are things that ask ourselves, which column do you identify with more? Which one is more attractive to you? Which one do you naturally gravitate towards? And it may mix depending on which line on there, right? There may be some things. And this may be a takeaway for some of you today. Take this and go walk and go sit before the Lord with this and say, God, which side am I on here? Am I on the side that's being blessed or am I on the other side, right? And it's never too late, Lord, you know, to, to move away from things as well. God can do amazing healing things. We saw it in the very physical sense in stage one. So his message, good news, is that this group of people that he's speaking to and group of us, maybe we're not the most influential or powerful or talented people, it doesn't say at any point there that he was talking to the religious elites. He was probably just talking to a whole bunch of regular, everyday people who probably didn't see themselves as being anything particularly special. And the good news is, he says, you have gifts, you have things, and I can use them. You are part of this kingdom of heaven of mine. That is good news. So now let's move on to his mission. At this point, He's, he's brought healing and he's preached. He's got a strategy. He's brought a, a message. But now he wants us to take that message and to go and share it with others. And so it reads, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We have two illustrations here that basically have the same meaning. Salt and light both have really strong uses. Um, salt, if left completely by itself, has no purpose. If it's just sitting there, it's not, not doing anything useful, right? If it's not being activated, it, what it should be doing, though, is enhancing the flavor and preserving things, right? Uh, if you ever go and eat something, right, sometimes you end up going, oh, this is maybe a little bland. It needs a little bit of salt, and it enhances, and it makes it something that you want to partake in. Light drives away the darkness. It very clearly illuminates things, right? It rids the darkness that is around us. And I know if we were to turn down all the lights here right now and say, hey, everyone who's got a cell phone, pull it out, you would see this is how amazing this could look if each of us were letting our light shine in this place that is otherwise dark if it doesn't have any lights turned on. 
And so you can see even in the illustration, we've got one little light bulb that's up here, and yet it's providing a lot of light in layers, right? There's a lot more light in the area close by, a little bit less as it gets further out, but it's doing its job. Now, this idea of light and dark, I think, is really important because there is a distinction that is there, but also because if we go all the way back into the book of Genesis, if we get back into the very first verses of the Bible, what we see is it says that at this point, you know, God was creating the heavens and the earth and everything is, is void and formless and dark. The very first words that it says for God's acts of creation, he says, let there be light. Now think about that. That's the first thing that he goes to. Let there be light. And thus, there's a separation between light and darkness. Thus, there's an advancing into the spaces of darkness to say, we're changing this now. There's going to be light shined here. And so when we let our light shine, the light from Jesus that lives in us, we are actually following in that same act of creation, the very first act of creation that God did. And remember, after each you know, part of creation, what did he say? It is good. The light is good. In the book of John, Jesus also identifies himself this way. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So this isn't just some theoretical idea. He, he claims it about himself. I am the light of the world, right? I will bring light so that there will be no darkness. And then as we see in our passage right here, he says, you are the light of the world. And that's because we are found in Jesus. We are walking with Jesus. And so my hope for each of us here today is that we will take all of this seriously to be able to say, gosh, there's, there's um, a, you know, a message that God has that involves me being included in his kingdom. It involves me very tangibly being healed, being able to take the broken and the suffering places of my life and expose those and allow them to be used. It allows me to shine this light into other people. Not to just say, hey, I was healed and let it be at that, but to be able to say, listen, I had this good thing happen to me and it's a result of Jesus. Jesus is, is the real light, right? Like, it's combining this. It's sharing with people the good news, but also the tangible side of things, too. So, a few things. These are kind of a few reflection questions that I have. And normally, after Roly and the worship team come up, right, and we'll take communion here, and there's a good spot right there to stop and reflect. But you can certainly begin doing that now. But three things that I would love for each of us to take away, to reflect on. You can do it today, you can do it this week. It's raining a lot this week, so you have plenty of time indoors to sit and reflect. First is to just honestly ask yourself, what has been your good news? Right? What is something tangible that, that God has done for you that has been really good news? Because it's going to be really challenging to share with other people about the goodness of who God is if you don't know what the good things are that he has done in your life. Second is to ask yourself, kind of like that middle section there, who's God made you to be, right? Like, if there are certain gifts that we talked about there in the Beatitudes there, are some of those things that you identify with? Or are there maybe other things too that 
you've been saying, gosh, that's, that's maybe more of a limitation in my life, right? This is something that I wish it was different. But instead of fighting against that, just saying, God, who have you made me to be? And how does this relate to the calling that you've placed on my life? And then finally, what is your role in God's kingdom? Who is he calling you to share your good news with? And I suppose I would add to all of this in some way, what is the tangible way that you can express that? Not just walking up to someone that maybe you don't know real well or maybe someone that you do and just saying, hey, I just want to tell you about Jesus, right? But like, that is good too. But is there a tangible piece that goes along with that that can be really good news? for these individuals. And that could be healing, like Jesus was doing, but it may be something very different, right? It may just be time that you spend with someone. It may be a gift that you provide. It may be taking care of someone's kids and just watching them for a little bit, but something that goes along with it. Because if we just talk about good news, but we don't actually display things that are good news, they're almost certainly not gonna be received as good news. Will you bow your heads with me? <laughs> Jesus, I thank you that you are good news. I thank you that you are good news in my life, in the lives of all the people who are here today, Lord that you are good news to the people of Davis in this area, to all of our students who come from all around, Lord, and everyone else that you put us in contact with. Lord, I know that some of us have limitations, we have sufferings, we have things that hold us back sometimes from really just connecting with you, Lord, and just believing that you can use us. And I thank you, God, for your word here that dispels that. I thank you, Lord, that the truth is, is that you do have hope for each of us, you do have a plan, that you do use us, that you love us, and that that, Lord, is good news too. So Lord, would you help us to draw close to you? Would you help us to know our own stories, what is good news for us, and how we can share this with others, Lord? Will you help us to be tangible in doing that? Be with us, Lord, we pray, fill us with your Holy Spirit, and display your love through us. In Jesus' name, amen.